So we've been in a series called Seven. Uh, we've been looking at the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapters one through three. And uh, we'll pull up a map for you and we'll show you kind of where we've traveled from already. Uh, we've handled Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. No, we haven't handled Ephesus. Have we? Hey, pay attention. Yes. Okay. Pergamum and Thyatira. And now we're on week five. I was like, I can't count right now. Okay. Now we're on week five, which is Sardis. And so today we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Sardis. If you have a Bible with me, uh, with you today, you can turn with me to go to Revelation chapter three and we'll look at that in just a few minutes. But essentially, let me tell you a couple things about the letters that Jesus sends to the churches. He sends these letters to the churches and he encourages the churches. He encourages those things or congratulates those strengths that they have. But then he corrects them for their weaknesses. I want to stop for just a second and I want to talk about correction. All the teenagers say amen. No, they're not the only ones that get corrected, right? In this life, we all experience correction. Correction from a a boss, correction from a spouse. And correction in itself is not bad. Correction is good. It really is. When it comes from someone in authority, it should be listened to and responded to. The truth is, correction leads to our improvement. If we would listen to correction. And I I thought about this this week as I was developing the message. I thought about the fact that when we refuse correction, what it actually does is it leads to bitterness in our heart. We start to rebel against authority. We rebel against our spouse, against our boss, against our parent, whatever the case, our teacher, whatever the case may be. And then we find ourselves bitter as a result. So when corrected, you have to respond with humility in order for it to work. So don't let your pride get in the way when you get corrected. In Jesus' name, amen. And we can go. If you would do that this week, I'm telling you, your life would be different. Um, Let me just say, I'm thankful for my amazingly capable wife sitting here on the front row. Uh, she, she preached for me last week and I got to listen to the message. Uh, I'm thankful for a time of retreat and a time of uh, a way that I could focus on what the Lord wants me to for this year. And, uh, I'm really thankful that she was, uh, standing here last week delivering the message. But if you missed that message, you should go online and listen to it. It is awesome. I listened to it. Um, you can go on our website, which is celebratepeople.org. Or you can go to your favorite um, podcasting app. iTunes and others are available. Let's jump right in. And let me ask you this question to start. How many of you honestly have ever fallen asleep in church? Never? (laughs) I'm going to call you never? Really? Let's give a round of applause to those who have never fallen asleep in church. All right. So the church we're looking at today is actually, we could call it the letter to the sleepy church. Because Sardis, uh, the, the Bible tells us, and what we're going to look at in just a minute, it says that those who were there in Sardis had fallen asleep and that they were, they were dead. 
So let's read Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I want to stop there for a second and tell you, we always say here that we should be works in progress, right? Jesus says, I am looking for a finished work in you. I am looking for you to be a finisher, to have completed the work that you were given. And it says, the sad thing is, he says, I have not found your works complete. Verse three says this, remember then what you received and you heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse four says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Now, when we read this, we might be tempted to think of uh, a dirty diaper. That is not the case. Jesus is actually saying, you have kept your garments clean and spotless. In other words, they have no dirt on them, no mud, no soil at all. And it says, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5 says, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out. Of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Stay there for just a second in verse five. He says this I will never blot his name out of the book of life. We need to pay attention to the words of Jesus when he speaks this way because there is a theology. There's this thought inside of churches, some churches, that say you can do whatever you want to after you've come to Christ and there will be no consequences because everything is under the blood. That's true, but it's also not. Because here, if we take the opposite approach, we can see that he has the choice and he indeed has the authority to blot names out of the book of life. Your name gets written, the Bible tells us, in the book of life when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But here he is threatening in the reverse way. He is threatening and saying, if you do this, here's the catch. Obedience is there. If you obey my word and do this, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. But the opposite can also be true. That if we do not respond to his word, if we do not obey his word, that we risk losing not just relationship with him here and now, but actually our eternal home is at risk. So he says this, and if you do these things, if you turn from your sin and you change your ways, I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Otherwise, Jesus is going to talk good about us to his father. Verse six says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. I said this before in the series, and this is week five of this series. I like that it says this at the end of each one of these short letters to the church because it gives an individual letter to the church and then it says, hear what the Spirit says, plural, to the churches. That map that we showed earlier essentially is a mail route. So they would have delivered the letters to the church. That church would have heard the message and then they would have sent a copy of their message on with the runner to go to the next place and deliver that letter. So they would have heard all of these messages Messages that were given to all of the churches. It's a good thing because it inspires hope, but it also probably instilled a little bit of fear. The fear of God is a good thing. And it would inspire that in the churches that heard it. So Sardis, essentially, their reputation did not match their reality. Let me give you a little history about Sardis. We try to do this every week as we've been going through these messages. Um, Sardis was the capital city of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. So in the area of modern day Turkey, there used to be a kingdom called Lydia. They were wealthy and prosperous. They were rich with gold and precious metals. In fact, it said that they are the first city in the world to mint coinage. That means to make coins used by the government to be able to purchase goods. This city, Sardis, is the first city that has that that reputation. So some call Sardis the birthplace of modern money. And this happened 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. So money's been around a really long time. So you might remember, anybody in here remember the name King Cyrus? Just raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you for details, but if you remember reading something about him, King Cyrus, he shows up in the book of Daniel. He's the guy that's in charge in a portion of the book of Daniel. And he was the king over a kingdom called Persia. So during his reign, there was a king over Lydia, over this area that we're seeing on the map. This whole western part of Turkey was Lydia. There was a king who reigned there from the capital city of Sardis. And his name was Croesus. Now, Croesus has many stories told about him. He's got a weird name as well. But they basically came to uh, butt heads and to go to war. The history of Sardis is really important. And I've said this before, that when Jesus gives a message to the church, it's distinct, it's unique, it's tailor-made for that church. If you've been in a service with us before, the Holy Spirit has shared either through me on the platform or maybe through someone in the audience, a message to the church that was distinct, unique, and tailor-made just for us. In fact, Megan's grandfather did that uh, last year. He came and visited our church and gave my wife and I a word directly from God to us. Now, how do we know it was directly from God and not just a bunch of stuff he made up? Here's the deal. I don't know him. He doesn't know me. But he said words about my life that were absolutely true. And they weren't just generic like, hey, I know you're going through a hard time and God loves you anyway. This was direct messaging from God himself by the spirit of God to Amy and I and to our church. God has an awesome ability In fact, he is limitless in his abilities to be able to speak to the church. So when we talk about the history of Sardis, it's important for you to know that Jesus can use your past in order to give you hope for a future. Amen? I want you to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church 
today in 2019, celebrate church in Clinton. So in the days of Cyrus and the opposite king, the one who reigned from Sardis, his name was Croesus. He built the city of Sardis to be on a hill, perched up on a hill, and it was nearly impenetrable. Their walls were strong. Many had tried to conquer it, but no one could until King Cyrus of Persia came. They battled on the plains outside of Sardis, and then the Sardines retreat. I don't know if that's really what you should say. I don't know. I looked it up, and there wasn't much information, okay? So then the Sardines went back in the can, okay? How many of you have ever had a sardine sandwich? Do you like them? Did you like them? Okay. A couple other hands over here. Yeah. Sardines and mustard on white bread. Oh my word. I took that to school and I couldn't figure out why nobody wanted to sit by me. But I mean, I really enjoyed it. Anyway, I don't know what to call them. Sardisians, sardines, whatever they were. They retreated into the city and 14 days they were under siege. Cyrus had his military surround the city. The story goes that on the 14th day, one of Cyrus' men saw one of Croesus' soldiers peering over the wall. And when he peered over the wall, his helmet loose, it fell off of his head and dropped. The soldier doing reconnaissance, he's looking to see what happens In just a moment, the man disappears from the top of the wall. Apparently, he goes down a secret staircase built in the wall. And he comes out a camouflage door that does not have a door handle, does not look like a door. It's just part of the wall. He opens it up. He runs outside, gets his helmet, and goes back inside. The story is told that that soldier, Cyrus soldier, then runs to tell Cyrus, Cyrus, you're not going to believe it. We've been here 14 days, but I'm telling you, King, I think I've just found the weak spot in this fortified city. So Cyrus then concocts this plan. He decides, you know what? If it's on this side of the wall, we're going to send all of our military or most of our military to the opposite side of the city. We're going to draw their attention this way. And I'm going to send my special forces in through that secret passage and get inside the city and take the city. And the plan actually works. Dozens of military um, Camps or groups of people had tried to take the city up until the days of Cyrus, and Cyrus finally had his way in. So his special forces go inside the city, and they take the city from within, unsuspecting and totally surprised. So when Croesus thought he was safe, he was not. Now, a similar thing happens 200 years later. Apparently, someone learned something from reading the history. And there is a man, you may have known him in history books, Alexander the Great. He then takes the city in a similar fashion, not through a secret doorway, but essentially there are dead bodies in the city. The new king is now having his military throw the bodies over the wall of the city so that the vultures can come and eat them and the disease would not be inside the city. And the soldiers, Alexander the Great soldiers, see that there are no military men guarding that part of the wall. They climb up the wall and they take the city again. These two massive conquests happen in the city of Sardis, one 600 years before Christ and one about 300 or so years, 350 years before Christ. So these happen and now there's a church there 
And I want you to hear and understand the personalized message that Jesus says. In the last part of verse 1, it says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete. Look at verse 3. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. That means to do your, do it right. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come against you. So Jesus is telling John to tell them, I know your history and I've seen what's happened before. You've been surprised by these two things that have happened in your past. And I'm telling you, the worst is not over because when I come, it's going to be really bad. So he says, I'm giving you a chance to read, to repent and to redo the things that you had done at first. They had a reputation of being alive. The whole world knew about this city being a rich, affluent city that had plenty of things going for it good. And I think their luxury lulled them to sleep. Um, some of you might understand when I say this, thank God I'm awake right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, did you get that? Some of you did. Our, our church members got that today. Thank God that we're awake, right? Their luxury lulled them to sleep because they thought everything is good. Another story, a competing story about the Alexander conquest says that at that point there were soldiers on the wall and he waited till the dark of night when he knew that they would be sleeping and not paying attention and took the city at night. So Jesus says that I will come like a thief against you. This doesn't sound like the pretty blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus that we hear about from people, right? The meek and mild, the, hey guys, everybody get along. We love each other. That, that Jesus is not here in this passage. He is, he is giving them a militaristic mindset or understanding. So they had this reputation of being alive, but they were truly dead. The translation for that could be this, that the spirit had left the building. The Holy Spirit had left the building. And it leads to a question, which is, what do you do when your reputation no longer reflects your reality? When the things that are said about you no longer reflect the reality that you live inside of? You know, you've probably experienced this before. I don't know about you, but I've been to some really great restaurants and I've been to some really bad restaurants. Anybody ever get like the surprise of a lifetime when you've heard good things about the restaurant, you show up and the service is horrible. It looks dingy, dark, dirty, everything like the cold food, everything is bad. Their reputation no longer reflects their reality. That's really sad when it happens to a restaurant. But I got to tell you, it's tragic when it happens to the church. So this is what happens to Sardis. Jesus said, you've got this reputation, but this is the reality. You're dead. So the church, by definition, should never die. Because it's the body of Christ. It's a living organism. It's a living fellowship. We truly have, we possess eternal life and we're together in this room today and we should be living in this world seeking to make it different for the gospel's sake and for the kingdom's sake. We should be alive and not dead. So how does this happen to a church? 
You know, many churches in North America are in decline. I'm not sure if you know this, but people like myself, pastors, look at numbers every once in a while, stats about things, and the numbers are jarring. In fact, every year, more than 3,500 churches in America close their doors. I want you to, to understand that. 3,500 churches in America close their doors. My brother-in-law, I love him and his wife and their family in Denver. They are planting a church. And I'll never forget talking. We talk every once in a while and catch up and that sort of thing. I'll never forget hearing the sadness in his voice when he said, Dexter, you're not going to believe what happened to this historic building that was a church for like 150 something years. It recently got bought out and it is turned into a nightclub with stained glass still in the building. They turned the cathedral into a nightclub. That's happening in America. It's happening all over Europe, all over in other places. But that is, that, the realization of that should be jarring to you. In fact, it says that 70%, this comes from George Barna's research, 70% of American churches are either plateaued or declining in their numbers. My prayer is that Celebrate Church would never experience that. God forbid that we grow complacent in our faith and the spirit leaves. We end up being a former, like a shell of our former self. That is not what this is about. We are supposed to be a live, living, vibrant church. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take two fingers, okay? Take your hand, and I want you to see if you can find your pulse. <laughs> Should be the, I can't remember the name of the artery, but Miss Ann might be able to say it out loud. Okay, the what? Yeah, the radial. Okay, let's go with that. That sounds like a good plan. Uh, put, your, put your two fingers right where your thumb connects to your wrist right here, and you can feel your heartbeat. I did that with my daughter this morning. I said, hey, honey, can I try something on you? She said, yeah. And I, I put my finger up here, which you can feel a beat here too. And she said, daddy, what are you doing? I said, I'm just checking to see if you're alive. And she just started laughing. Little Brighton. She's funny. Um, the idea is this, though, that today we need to do an autopsy on this dead church, the church of Sardis. We need to check to see, since there isn't a heartbeat, we need to see what contributed to them dying. And I believe that the message that Jesus gives them is very clear throughout the New Testament, as well as in this exact letter, there are six proofs of a dead or a dying church. So if we could perform an autopsy this morning on this church, the church of Sardis with an application to celebrate church, I believe that's what we should do. Here's sign number one. Number one is this. The Holy Spirit has left the building. When we say that, it's a, it's a hint back to the days of, you know, Elvis has left the building. We know that the Holy Spirit doesn't live in this place when you're not here. He lives inside of you. But the idea is this, that number one, the Holy Spirit has absolutely left the church. If you just look at the greeting in verse one, go back to verse one. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven, can you get that out there? Yeah, seven spirits of God. Huh? I thought there was the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus talking about? You think that was an error in his language? I don't think so. 
He says, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So if you're like me and wondered, uh, what is he talking about? (laughs) Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 tells us that the Holy Spirit has multiple aspects. Look at what it says. It says, and the spirit of the Lord, that's one, shall rest upon him. Talking about Jesus. It says the spirit of wisdom, that's two. The spirit of understanding, that's three. The spirit of counsel, that's four. The spirit of might, that's five. The spirit of knowledge, that's six. And the fear of the Lord, which is seven. This is the sevenfold manifestation. It's the demonstration of what the Holy Spirit does. And in fact, the Bible does not contradict itself. If you can look up any scripture regarding the Holy Spirit in scripture, I believe, and I've done the research, you will not find a single verse that doesn't match up to him acting in this way. These are the seven attributes. So when Jesus says that, he says, it's, it, I am standing here where the seven spirits of God are and the seven stars, which we know refer to the churches and the pastors in the churches. So there's one Holy Spirit, but a sevenfold ministry. Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit to fill believers. He's the one who baptizes us in the spirit and fills us. He's the one who fills the church with the Holy Spirit, but he is not stingy. If we say the Holy Spirit has left, it's not because God said, whoop, I want to take it away from you. Ha ha. It's because you and I are not living the life that God has called us to live, which is dedicated to him and asking for his presence to fill us and his power to fill us. So Sardis was a rich, affluent city, but they stopped depending on the Spirit's power and started leaning on their own. That's what luxury can do. I don't know if you've ever met a rich person with a bad attitude. <laughs> I've met a rich I've met many rich people with a bad attitude, but I've met a few rich people with an amazing heart of gratitude thankful for all that God has given them and they are a blessing to everyone around them. But most of the time, luxury lulls us into this idea that, hey, we got this, we can pay this, we can do this, we can do that. And I'm here to tell you, Celebrate Church, I believe with all of my heart, the message for Sardis is a message to us today. Not as much about the correction side of things, but in the idea and understanding today that we must be fully dependent on God. Because the moment we start depending on our own strength and our own programs and our own stuff, we might as well close the doors. I'm telling you, and in this season, celebrate church, listen to me. In this season, we must be spirit-filled believers who are seeking his presence and his power in our lives. So you know what the antidote for a spirit-less church is? More spirit-filled believers. That's the only way that this changes course. A second symptom is related to the first. It's no passion for prayer. If you want to take the pulse of any church, it said, and I've seen it myself, see how it values the ministry of prayer. I will tell you that we think that prayer is important, but sometimes we don't act like it. I'm putting myself in your shoes. If, if anybody's getting a paddling today, it's you and I both. 
There is no passion for prayer in a dying church. I remember years ago in the late 90s, uh, well, mid-90s really, God did a special work in the city of Pensacola, Florida. You may not be familiar or understand some of the details, but you can look up and see some of their videos. God did a special work in a city, in, Pens- in a church in Pensacola called Brownsville Assembly of God. I had the awesome opportunity of going there as a high schooler, traveling down with some friends and going to revival services. Now, this wasn't just uh, like listed on a board somewhere that said revival coming May 1st through 3rd. Okay, this was there were thousands of people getting on planes from around the world because they had heard that God is in that place. It was a powerful thing. There was some wacky stuff. There's always going to be some wacky stuff because there's wacky people in the world. They were wacky before God. Hello? And they just got a little bit more wacky. But you got to take some of the wacky with all of the good. So I remember going there and I remember standing out. I'm telling you, I stood outside starting at 6 in the morning. And we were told that day that there were 2,400 people in line with us on a sidewalk in Pensacola during the rain at 6 a.m. so that we could get inside the doors at 6 p.m. It was one of the most wild things I'd ever experienced in my life. I got in there and the Holy Spirit was definitely in the place. I'm telling you, the worship was amazing. There were people being healed, physical healings happening, verified by doctors. It was incredible. I'm telling you, I get goosebumps just talking about it today because my heart longs for days like that here in this church. We don't need 2,400 people, but there are 25,000 in Clinton and they ought to have a home church where the spirit of God is. And we ought to be one of those homes for those people. So I, I say all that to lead up to this. The pastor of that church, a blessed man of God, he pastors another church now in Mobile. His name is John Kilpatrick. I remember hearing the stories and watching video testimonies of him saying that he started with about 10 ladies. The church was a mega-sized church that could fit thousands of people. But he started with 10 ladies and a few guys who started coming to church early on Tuesday mornings starting in 1990. And they would walk through the sanctuary and they would pray. They'd have an hour of prayer. They'd walk through. They'd put their hands on the chairs. Not that there's magic in their fingertips. But they would come through and they'd say, Lord, bless the person that's going to sit here today. Lord, do a work in their life. If they have bondage, let them be free. God, I pray today. And they would just pray and pray and pray. And the Lord answered five, six years worth of prayer in a single moment. When the Holy Spirit decided to break through, there was a passion for prayer that led to revival. Paul encourages the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says this, pray without ceasing. Like don't stop praying. So I want to encourage you. It's not that early. 9.45 on Sunday mornings. We would love for you to be in this house doing the very same thing I just referenced. We walk through here and we pray. We pray for those who serve. We pray for those who will be served. We pray for salvation, for healing. We're believing that God really wants us to focus in on him and ask him for his help. Because Zechariah chapter 4 verse 5 says this, it is not by human might, not by human power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. So the work has got to be accomplished and it, it rests on him, but we are partners with him. Amen? 
Let me say this about prayer. And you're like, Pastor, you said there's six and we're only on two. I know, the other ones will be quick. Let me say this. At the end of our service, every, every Sunday, almost every Sunday, we give you the opportunity for prayer. These two little tables on either corner over here, a person stands there at that table. While the worship team sings a song, we call it the encore song. While they do that, we say, if you need prayer for any reason, Step out of your seat and receive prayer. It could be that you need a job. It could be that you're having a fight with a, a coworker or a spouse or whatever it might be. But here's the thing that I've noticed. There are two things that stop anyone from praying. One is pride and the other is related. It's the fear of embarrassment. Well, no way. I mean, I just stood on the platform and sung songs. If I walk over there, people are going to think I'm some dirty sinner who can't get my life together. It's true. <laughs> it's true. And not just about her, about her, about me, about you. Right? So I say that to, to plead with you as a church. Respond. When the offer for prayer is given, respond. Because there is, I almost said there's magic. There is an amazing, there's miracles when we come together and pray. The Bible says in James that if you call for the people of the church to come together and pray for you, that the sick will be made well, that God would be glorified, that things will change. So do it today at the end of this message. If you need prayer for any reason, get pray, prayer, prayer, get prayer. Third symptom, the third symptom of a dying church is this. They have no ear for the truth. Listen to the Apostle Paul's warning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, that's like good biblical foundational teaching, but they have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You could have stayed home today and turned on the TV and found a lot of these. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Is this happening in our world today and in our nation today that people don't want to hear what you have to say if it's not something that makes them happy and joy filled. But here's the deal. God desires your transformation. He does not desire your comfort. We've got it wrong if we think that he desires our comfort. It is not true. That is nowhere in the word of God. Yes, he desires you to have a good night's sleep. Yes, he desires you to have peace. Yes, he desires you to manage your budget well and to be having your bills paid and to be a good steward of what he's given you. But beyond that, he has not called us to luxury. He has called us to transformation. So their luxury has caused them to be comfortable and want to just hear what they want to hear. Spirit-filled churches and spirit-filled preaching comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. We love you too much to tell you what you want to hear. Some of us might need a few Q-tips today. I know it says on the box, don't use them in your ears, but people do, I do. I'm just using it as an illustration today. The fourth symptom of a dying church is tolerance of sin. Look at what Jesus says to Sardis in verse three. He says, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Repent means to turn from it and turn to God. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. You'll, you will not know the hour that I come against you. God is holy and he's perfect. So he gets to set the standard. 
and we don't change the word of God to fit our feelings. We allow God's word to change us. That's what it's all about. So we preach the word of God about things that involve sin and temptation and issues in our life because we know that our heavenly father loves us and he doesn't want to leave us like he found us. Amen. Come on. We have got to submit our lives, even the areas of our life that are hard and most difficult to his authority. When we do so, he honors it and he blesses us. So let me ask you this question. Please don't answer it out loud. Is there an area of your life where you know you should repent, yet you are choosing not to? You might say, well, I'll do that later. Well, that's too, it's really too hard. I mean, surely God understands this is, this is my lot in life. It's my cross to bear. He does understand and he wants to take it from you. He wants to help you with it. If you say something like, you know, I know it's, it's going to be hard. Maybe I'll do that later. Here's what later means. Later means no. And if you're a teenager, you should start listening. If you tuned out, listen up. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. At least that's what we've told our kids. You can't say to mommy when mommy says, pick up your dirty clothes after I finish this game. All right, I know I'm stepping on your toes. I'll just get off this. Listen, delayed obedience is disobedience. When you delay in obeying God's word, the truth is you're truly saying, no, I'm not gonna do it. And here's the thing that you do. You literally, I want you to have this image in your mind. You literally grab Jesus by his kingly robe and throw him off the throne of your life and you sit yourself on it. So stop saying later. It's significant that the Lord commands them to remember. Here's the thing. Their spiritual vitality could return not through doing something new that they'd never done before. It was through redoing something old. It was through returning and remembering something that they had forgotten along the way. So Celebrate Church doesn't tolerate sin. That doesn't mean you're not welcome here. It just means that we ask that God would transform your life and we want to help you. If you don't course correct, Jesus is telling them, sure, death is coming, and it's sooner than you think. Number five, here's number five, division. Division, jealousy, infighting, politics, petty debates. I don't know if you've been part of a church that had some stupid arguments about things, and people got up in their feelings, and they decided, well, I'm taking my money, and I'm going to go somewhere else. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's just the voice I hear in my head. But Paul warned the first, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 about this very thing. And you know what most often kills churches? Not the devil. Christians. <laughs> this is, this is tough. I was, I was studying for this message and I thought, oh my gosh, this is blowing my mind. The reality is it's the people who say they love God are the ones who are eating each other up alive and spitting out the bones. Celebrate church is not that church, nor in God's power and his strength will we ever be that church. If you want to fight about the carpet, there are 20 something other churches you can go fight about the carpet. I think you'll all agree if you look down, we need new carpet. Okay. 
And I don't care what color it is. I do. Just not pink, purple, green, blue. No. Okay. So here's the deal. A divided church is a dying church. Because it's easy pickings for the enemy. When there's division in your marriage, stuff happens. When there's division in your thought about how you should run the business and how this other person wants to run the business, when there's a diversion of vision, when it's split, it's never going to work. It says that we have got to understand that a divided church is a dying church. And here's what happens. The enemy neutralizes the testimony of the church for the rest of the world while it goes to hell in a handbasket because Christians are chewing each other up and spitting them out. I'm preaching today because I'm telling you, we ain't that church. Amen? God help us never be that church. I don't know what to do right now. I just felt the Holy Spirit stop me to tell me, to tell you that gossip is a number one killer for a church. If you've got a problem with someone, the Bible actually lays out the way to handle it. You don't go, hey buddy, come here, let me tell you what so-and-so did to me and let me get you on my... We don't do that. People who love God don't do that. So if you're gossiping, stop it. Okay, I'm gonna keep on going. Let me say this though. If you've been burned by a church before, because of infighting, because of division. And you came to celebrate church looking for healing and wholeness. I'm thankful that you're here today. And I gotta tell you from my heart, this burns within me, that it was not God's will for you to be hurt by his people. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I stand here today with burn marks on my own spirit from having been burned in a church. Not just one church. My parents were burned in a church. I was burned as a kid in a church. I I say it from the scars that I bear. I'm telling you I'm sorry. But I believe with all of my heart that God has anointed this place to be a place of healing for those who hurt and who have been hurt by the church. What we need to be, I believe God's dream for our church is still not yet fulfilled because he wants us to be a thriving, vibrant, healthy, spirit-filled church that's united by Christ. And we have got to strive and work for that every day. We've got to be careful. Okay, we don't know the full story of what went wrong in Sardis, but if you did an autopsy of that church, I believe you'd find this last thing, number six. They stopped taking risks or they refused to take risks for the gospel. See, faith is taking the first step when God hasn't revealed the next one yet. Let me say that again. Faith is taking the first step when God hasn't revealed the next step yet. He said, Abraham, pack your bags. Where am I going? I'm not telling you. Okay. Yes, sir. That's what faith really is. We are in a season which can either, we can come out as a church or individually, individually, you can come out of this season either amazingly blessed because you were faithful to Jesus in the midst of whatever you faced or completely defeated. It all depends on where you put your focus. Our focus remains and we attempt to make it remain on him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light.
I heard a, a quote recently. It says this, attempt something so big it's bound to fail unless God intervenes. That's got to be God because they're not smart enough. They're not rich enough. They're not strong enough. They're not skilled enough. They're not fill in the blank enough. It's got to be God. That's what we are setting out to do. We set out to do this five years ago when Amy and I came to this church and we believe God put us here and we continue to strive for it today because the dream that God has for us is so big that it's bound to fail unless he does the work through us and in us. We want to see our community change for the glory of God. I want to see the lost saved. I want to see those who are hurting find the hospital that can help heal them. I want to see the gospel find its place in good soil in every heart that comes in this place. And that requires faith. Amen? But faith requires risk. Wouldn't it be amazing if every person that calls Celebrate Church their home invited an unchurched or a lost person to church next week? I mean, it would be amazing. I'm, I'm not here to bash you. This is not, I'm not a brow beater when it comes to things like this. Listen, you and I both need to invite more people to church. We need to invite them because when we invite them, we never know what God may do and have lined up for them. I read a story recently about a woman who shared a devotional book. She was in college and she was going through a stressful time. Her roommate was going through a stressful time and she heard the Holy Spirit tell her, give her that devotional book and she refused. No, I'll do it later. No, that's weird. We haven't really talked about faith. I'm kind of weirded out about that. But then she finally gave in a few days later and gave it to her friend. Her friend's life direction was changed just because she obeyed something that simple. So I will say from the platform and I will say it personally, I don't want people from Morrison Heights. I love Greg Belser. I love his church. They are gospel-centered, gospel-focused. They're doing everything in their power in this community. But I don't want the people that want to leave there to come here. Is that okay for me to say that out loud? I don't want the people from Pine Lake. I'm telling you, I believe God wants this church to be a church that's filled with people who were unchurched, who didn't have a home, who got hurt in their last home, who are looking for a place of healing. And I don't want to be the one who causes division in the body of Christ. I have friendships with these men, these men of God who run these churches and who pastor them. So I say that today. Don't be talking your church up to somebody who doesn't come here and they go somewhere else. Talk it up with somebody that doesn't know Jesus that doesn't have a real relationship with him. Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. And this is a symbol of judgment. So the question really for you to consider today is when he comes, because you don't know when he's going to come, when he comes, will he find you asleep or will he find you awake? Listen to what it says in verse four and five. You still have a few names left in Sardis, people who have not soiled or muddied their garments. He says, I will never blot their name out of the book of life and I will walk with them in white. I'll confess their name before my father and his angels. There's always a few faithful saints that keep the torches lit. And I'm thankful for those in this room that that shoe fits. Jesus gave them a second chance and I believe today he's giving us a second chance. Would you stand with me? When I say I believe he's giving us a second chance, it's, it's that he's giving you individually 
and our church collectively a second chance. If there's something today, and I am so, I am so confident of this, I would stake something very valuable on it. The Holy Spirit stopped me in this message to tell you about gossip. And I'm asking you, if that's you, don't say later. And maybe it's not even in the church. You say, Pastor, gosh, you got up on a soapbox today. You must have heard somebody talking bad about somebody else. No, I have literally not heard anything like that. But I'm telling you, God wants a clean house and a clean bride when he comes back. He's looking for her to have no spots or wrinkles on her dress. And the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. And he desires us. He is the only one who can make you pure. Close your eyes with me right now. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, this is a great message. I've got some some mud on me. I want you to stop for just a second and think about those things. Whatever it is, the sins that you've committed in the past, maybe a struggle that you continue to carry. I believe today God wants to set free those who are willing to be set free. So if that's you today, reach out to God in prayer when we pray in just a moment and say, God, purify me, make me clean. Step out to one of our prayer stations and you can be prayed for. Miss Ann's gonna go to this prayer station over here and I'll be over here at this one in just a moment when the worship team sings. But I wanna tell you today, you can open up your eyes and look at me real quick. I wanna tell you today that I believe that Celebrate Church, if you say, Pastor, this message sounds good, but it doesn't really apply too much to me, I'm gonna tell you the two things our church needs that I believe by the Holy Spirit, our church needs. And the first is this, prayer. I think we need a whole lot more of it. You need it in your individual life and I need it in mine and we need it in the body of Christ collectively. That's the first thing. And the second thing, if I was diagnosing and giving an autopsy to our church or that we were on a life machine, your life support machine, trying to keep us alive. If that's the case, and there were two things that need to be fixed. The second thing is that we have got to take risks for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have got to put away your shyness. If that's the case, you got to put away the threat of embarrassment and you've got to share your faith with somebody this week. Pray for somebody, offer to be the person who, who calls them and checks in on them. Do something that leads them to a place of having a deeper faith in Jesus. Father, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each one of us individually. You're so powerful and awesome. You can tell us one thing personally and one thing collectively. God, I pray today that you, by your spirit, you've already been speaking to the deepest parts of us. But today I pray that we would respond and obey, that we wouldn't put it off. And Lord, for for your sake, literally for God's sake, for your name's sake, for these people's sake, I pray today that Celebrate Church would be found alive and awake and thriving when you come to check on us. In Jesus' name we pray.